Well, good morning, church. Great to see you this morning. My name is John. I am not Pastor Jeff. My name is, is John. I'm one of the pastors up at GCF North. It is so great to be with you. A lot of, a lot of old friends and, uh, and meeting new friends as well. So um, I'm a Northside guy. I grew up in North Spokane, Mead High School graduate. And so if I look a little lost here out in the valley, that's, that's why. I'm just... A, unfamiliar territory, but it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, we, you, are going through uh, a series, a summer series in the Psalms. Last week was Psalm 20, and so this week is Psalm 21. See how that works? 20, then 21. And so we're going we're gonna to open God's Word and, and hear what He has to say to us from Psalm 20. Would you stand with me, if you're able, as I read Psalm 20? 21, Psalm 21. Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head, he asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me, let me pray for us one more time before we look at Psalm 21. Our Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for the great privilege that we have of being your people, and of gathering together to worship our resurrected King, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that privilege, and we do pray now, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit so that we could hear you speak and respond appropriately. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I remember watching the original release of The Empire Strikes Back. I saw this movie in this thing called a movie theater. It was this big building with a lot of seats and a big screen, if you've ever heard of those. Um, it was 1980, I believe, long time ago. And for those that don't have a clue what I'm talking about, The Empire Strikes Back was the second in the original Star Wars trilogy. And you know, there's something about the second movie or the second installment of a trilogy. There's that constant sense of looking back 
and then looking forward. You know what I'm talking about? The second movie, the second installment of a trilogy. I remember I kept going back to the first movie to see how the past connects to what's going on in the present. And, and then no matter how great that second installment is, and Empire is generally considered the greatest Star Wars movie, right? Am I right? That's generally considered the, the best one. No matter how great it is, you're constantly looking forward, right? I'm anticipating, I'm looking forward for the third movie, and, and it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. Well, Psalm 21 is kind of the empire strikes back of the Psalms in that this Psalm looks back and it looks forward. Psalm 21 looks back and gives thanks for the king's past victory. And then Psalm 21 looks forward and anticipates the king's future victory. We could summarize Psalm 21 very simply as God gives the king victory. God gives the king victory. And it's a psalm in three parts. First, we hear the people give thanks for the king's past victory. Second, we hear the people recognize the source of the king's confidence. And third, we hear the people anticipate the king's future victory. So first, they give thanks for the past victory. Second, they recognize the source of the king's confidence. And third, the people anticipate the king's future victory. Well, first, thanks for the king's past victory. Last week, for those of you that were here, you looked at Psalm 20. Is that right? Psalm 20. And in Psalm 20, we saw that the nation Israel was under threat. And since the king is and was responsible to protect the nation, the people pray for the king. Because the king's victory is their victory, right? And so the people ask, they pray to God, and they pray that he would give the king safety and victory. And now in Psalm 21, the people give thanks because God has answered their prayers. And in verse 1, we'll pick it up. They say, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. The ESV translates the Hebrew Yeshua as salvation. That word can also be translated deliverance or victory. And so the people of Israel give thanks to God for responding to their request and giving the king victory. And in the following verses, they get very, very specific. In verses 3 and 5, they give thanks specifically for the honor that this victory gives the king. The honor that this victory gives the king. Verses 3 and 5, for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. The people here picture God welcoming David back into the city of Jerusalem, possibly wearing the crown of the, of the defeated king, the, the crown that David had taken from the head of the de defeated king. And this, this crown is a public sign of honor for all to see, right? 
It's an open sign of divine approval that everybody can look and notice and see. And so there's thanks for the king's honor. The people give thanks that the king's life is preserved in verse 4. So honor and then thanks for the king's life. Verse 4, he asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. The king had led his military into the dangers of war and God had spared his life. The description length of days means long life. It's like long earthly life. My mom is 95 years old and that would that's long earthly life. But it's more than just long earthly life. The added forever and ever at the end of verse 4 hints at God's promise to David that his royal line would continue would continue on. His royal line would go on forever. And that's why the New English translation renders verse 4 like this. You have granted him long life and an enduring dynasty. So they give thanks for the king's honor, the king's life. And then finally in verse 6, the people give thanks for the king's joy. The king's joy because of God's presence. Verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. The presence of God is the central promise of all the biblical covenants. It's God's presence which makes glad and gives joy. And so the people give thanks for the honor, the life, and the joy that are the blessings of the king's victory. This practice of giving thanks continued throughout history. During the Revolutionary War, the battles at Saratoga, if you're familiar with those, the battles at Saratoga were, were decisive, were crucial in turning the fortunes of the fledgling United States. And in response, the United States Congress set aside December 18th, 1777, as a day of thanksgiving. It was a very specific day, not some vague giving of thanks, kind of like our Thanksgiving. It's kind of a vague, you know, national giving of thanks vaguely. No, this day, this December 18th, 1777, was a very specific day of thanks that was given specifically to Almighty God for giving military success at Saratoga. Like the people of Psalm 21, this early Congress gave thanks that God gave victory. Well, one lesson of Psalm 21 verses 1 through 6 is simply this. We should give thanks. We should give thanks, and not thanks generally, but specifically to God for his specific gifts. In his book, The Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks, isn't that a great title? The Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks, I need a little bit of that. Dustin Crow begins with a gratitude quiz. I know you weren't prepared. This is a Sunday morning pop quiz. Just three questions. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to say the answers out loud. But I would like you to think about how you would respond to these questions. Do you more often, A, remember God's blessings in your life, or B, forget them? And if you respond, John, what blessings, that would be answer B. 
okay? Number two, do you tend to rehearse, A, God's generosity and goodness, or B, what seems unfair? Number three, if you were to list reasons for gratitude, would it be A, a long list and easy to come up with things to give thanks for, or B, a short list and hard to think of many things? I wonder how you did. Probably, I'm guessing, most of us could grow in giving thanks. And here's the thing. Giving thanks is actually good for you. A 2010 study on gratitude and well-being found that, quote, gratitude is strongly related to well-being. Not surprising. Gratitude is good for you, and it's also good for your relationship with God. The practice of giving thanks leads to knowing God more deeply because giving thanks actually creates more intimacy with God. Now, maybe you're thinking at this point, John, that all sounds good, giving thanks, I like that, but I don't want to become one of those inauthentic, plastic smile kind of Christians. You know what I'm talking about? I don't want to walk around with a plastic smile just pretending everything is good. And I agree. I don't want that for you either. I don't want that for me. The practice of giving thanks doesn't mean we ignore the challenges of life in a fallen world. I like how Dustin Crow says it in, in the book I referred to. He says this, biblical gratitude is gritty gratitude. Biblical gratitude is gritty gratitude. It's honest about brokenness and affirms difficulties and disagreements all around, and yet it sees reasons to give thanks in all things. It doesn't sweep the junk of life under the carpet of ignorance, but it does find more reasons to be grateful than to grumble. So really the question for us this morning is, what specific things can you give thanks for today? Like right now, like this morning. What are some specific reasons to be grateful I mean, think about it this way. We live in a cynical and pessimistic age, do we not? Is that a fair statement? A cynical and pessimistic age. Practicing gratitude, can you imagine? Practicing a gritty gratitude is one way to stand out, one way to be very, very different in a cynical and pessimistic culture. So the first thing we see in Psalm 21 is the people give thanks for the king's victory. The people prayed in Psalm 20, and God responds, and now they give thanks. The second thing we see is the people recognize the source of the king's confidence. The source of the king's confidence. And in verse 7, that's where we see the source of the king's confidence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. The source of the king's confidence in a word is God's steadfast love. Through or because of 
God's steadfast love for the king, he has confidence. A confidence that gives his life stability, even when he's under threat from enemies. A stability even when enemies threaten. Now, the word steadfast love is a translation of the Hebrew word hesed. If you were going to learn one Hebrew word, this would probably be the one to learn. Hesed. It's a beautiful word. It's translated in many different ways in English. Faithful love, faithfulness, loving kindness. Here, steadfast love. And it's really, really hard to capture the meaning of this word in one single word. Hesed speaks to God's unbreakable commitment to love. It's this unbreakable commitment to love. And in this case, picture it as God's face shining in warmth and affection over King David. A warmth and affection that always does what's best and will never fade, falter, or fail. That's something of God's steadfast love. And this reference to to God's steadfast love is likely an allusion to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. The Davidic covenant is where God pledged his love to David and promised that through David's descendants, his kingdom would have no end. Remember that? In that sense, David would enjoy an eternal throne, as was hinted at in verse 4. But here's, here's the thing. If you know the history of Israel, it looked like God's love to David had failed. I mean, for one thing, David's own confidence in God faltered, right? And for another, the kings in David's line turn away from God completely. The Davidic kings are defeated completely and totally. The nation is exiled. Do you remember all this? The nation is exiled, sent out of the land, and no Davidic kings rule. But the Old Testament prophets insist that a Davidic king will come. And you know the story. 2,000 years ago, a virgin heard this message about her son, Jesus, this descendant of David. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. In Jesus Christ, we see that God's steadfast love to David did not fail. Jesus is the promised king. But he was not the king that many expected. Jesus came 2,000 years ago not to defeat the earthly powers around him, but he came to defeat the powers of sin and of death. Jesus defeated sin and death by his own death. He said this, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. That's a different kind of king. 
Jesus laid his life down in obedience to God, and only after death was Jesus exalted and honored. The Apostle Paul captures it like this. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord or King to the glory of God the Father. What this means is that though eternally God, Jesus came in the flesh to take the judgment our sin deserves, death on a cross, in our place. And throughout his life and even in death, Jesus placed his confidence in God's, in his Father's steadfast love. And when Jesus died, it looked like God's steadfast love to Jesus had failed. But God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, proving God's love, proving Jesus' victory over sin and death, proving that Jesus is the promised king. Jesus was raised and then exalted to the right hand of the Father, where he now rules and reigns as king of the universe. Here's why that's significant for Psalm 21. Based on Jesus' victory over sin and death, there's a sense in which the first six verses of Psalm 21 find their greatest fulfillment not in King David, but in King Jesus. Jesus is exalted and crowned with honor, the honor of a worldwide rule. If we read back into verse 3, for you meet him, King Jesus, with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Jesus has eternal life in that his resurrection is victory over death. Remember verse four, he, the king, asked life of you and you gave it to him length of days forever and ever. And Jesus now enjoys reigning in the presence of God, his eternal father. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. King Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of verses 1 through 6, and, and Jesus' victory in all these ways is the fruit, or was the fruit, of his own confidence in God's steadfast love. In verse 7, for the king, King Jesus, trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved, even in death. King Jesus came 2,000 years ago to inaugurate a new covenant, a new era of forgiveness and intimacy with God. And that means that God, through Jesus, offers his steadfast love to you and to me. When you place your confidence in Jesus, God pledges, he promises his steadfast love to you. Imagine it with me right now, God's face shining in warmth and affection on you personally. 
like the sun on a cloudless day. A warmth and affection that will never fade, falter, or fail, never. A love that will never fade as you continue to struggle with sin. And I continue to struggle with sin. A love that will never falter as you experience suffering. A love that will never fail even through death. That's the good news. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Confidence in God's steadfast love provides the only real stability in the failures the sorrows and the losses of life in a fallen world. God's steadfast love provides the only real stability for you and for me. And what's amazing is this, God is greatly pleased when you have confidence in his steadfast love for you. When you're confident of his love, tenderness, and kindness toward you. That pleases God. But here's the problem. At least in my life, here's the problem. The challenge to that, to that confidence in God's love, is undermined by our culture and undermined by our own fickle hearts. Our culture teaches and our fickle hearts tend to look for confidence inside ourselves. We tend to look for things like our abilities, our talents, and gifts. We tend to look for confidence in things like our accomplishments, our money, our power, our influence, our wisdom, our relationships, and the affirmation of others. Are you with me on that? I mean, do you feel that? And those aren't bad things. But as objects of confidence, All of those things make promises that they cannot consistently keep. And that's why our daily experience is instability. The rise and fall of confidence constantly. And just to be clear, it's not wrong to be talented, popular, accomplished, or influential. I'd I'd love to experience that someday, to be one of those things. So it's not wrong to be those things. But biblical confidence teaches us to look outward to God's steadfast love in Jesus. It's not wrong to be those things, but it's wrong to look to those things as the source of our confidence. And so biblical confidence teaches us to look outward to God's steadfast love in Jesus. God and his steadfast love is the only reliable object of our confidence. And so here's the question for you and for me today. Really simple. Where is your confidence? Where is your confidence? Where is the source of your confidence? And you're probably going to have to ask me that question in about 20 minutes. John, where's the source of your confidence? Because it's all over the place, right? But one way to grow confidence in God's love is to recognize that every ability, every opportunity, every other benefit that we have are gifts from God, gifts that flow from his love. And so practicing gratitude 
actually cultivates confidence in God's steadfast love as we, as we remember that those gifts are gifts of grace and gifts of love. And as we grow in confidence in God's steadfast love for us, that confidence results in growing stability through the difficulties, the losses, the failures of life. Well, in Psalm 21, we've seen first, the people give thanks for the king's victory. Second, we've seen that the people recognize the source of the king's confidence. And finally, we see the people anticipate the king's future victory. The people anticipate the king's future victory. In verses 8 through 12, the future tenses indicate that the people anticipate the king's future victory. The people reason that because God loves the king, his past victory, right, is not his last victory. Should David's enemies rise up again, he will, the people are confident that he will be victorious. But these verses seem to anticipate something more. There's something more going on here. Because this picture, as we read through it, maybe you felt this when we read it, this picture almost turns apocalyptic. It seems to be a picture of a future, final, and decisive victory. And so what I think is going on here is just as verses 1 through 7 find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, I think verses 8 through 12 find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus as well. Verses 8 through 12 point us to the ultimate victory when King Jesus comes again to consummate God's kingdom. Listen to the absolute terms of this victory. Verse 8 speaks to the certainty of the victory. The certainty. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. This victory is not likely or probable, but certain. And then there's the totality of victory in verses 9 through 10. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. It's a victory where every enemy is defeated completely and totally. So the victory is certain, the victory is total, and finally, the victory is just. There is justice in the victory we find in verses 11 and 12. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. It's a victory where justice is executed. Those who plan evil against King Jesus will get exactly what they deserve. These are awful and terrifying words. And they remind me of a scene from that movie, Remember the Titans. You remember that movie, Remember the Titans? It's the regional championship game. And if you remember, because of racial prejudice, the officials call the game 
unfairly. Flag after flag on the Titans. And it's the moment of truth for Coach Yost. It's the moment of truth. And he's seen enough. And he gathers his formidable defense together. And you remember what he said to him? He said, you blitz all night. If they gain another yard, I'm going to take every last one of you out. And as his defense runs back onto the field, he yells, leave no doubt. And they didn't. There will be no doubt in King Jesus' future victory. We currently live in a world of rebellion against King Jesus. Shootings, war, greed, abuse, selfishness. The psalmist describes this future victory as certain, total, and just. King Jesus will judge and remove every form of evil from the world. That's what it means for God's kingdom to come. Some say that they like the God of the New Testament, the God of grace and mercy, but the God of the Old Testament, the God of wrath and judgment, you know, no thanks. And it, it is true that in the New Testament, we read that King Jesus came the first time to offer amnesty for rebels like you and like me. But it's the uniform witness of the New Testament that if you refuse Jesus as Savior now, you'll face him as judge then. And so to people that say they like the God of the New Testament, but not the old, I ask as respectfully as I can, have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever read passages like Acts 17, where we read, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Or have you read 2 Thessalonians 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Or Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Grace and mercy, wrath and judgment are found in both the Old and New Testaments. Both bear witness that King Jesus will return in wrath and judgment, he will be victorious over all his enemies.
So one question for us as Christians is how do we reckon with the clear teaching of Scripture regarding wrath and judgment? Let me just say a couple of things. First, we must accept it. First, we must accept it. We may not like it. We may not completely understand it. We may continue to wrestle with it. But since these are God's words, we must accept it. Everyone will be judged. All will give an account. No exceptions. God's word teaches that. And accepting this teaching helps us avoid two extremes. Apathy on the one end of the spectrum and smugness, like a righteous smugness on the other. Knowing that judgment is coming should relieve us of being apathetic towards our family, our friends, and our neighbors. And none of us should be smug, right? We deserve judgment. We deserve death on a cross. It's only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we're saved from God's wrath and judgment. How can we be smug when it costs Jesus so much to save us from his judgment? So first, we must accept the teaching of Scripture. Second, I think, we can rest in this teaching of Scripture. We can rest in God's perfect justice. The king's future victory means that God will execute perfect justice. So perfect justice doesn't have to be done by us now. Now please hear what I'm saying. We should use every righteous means available to us to work for justice now. We should use every righteous means, every just means, to work for justice in the here and now. But the reality is perfect justice is rarely attainable in this world. And so we can work for justice and yet we can rest knowing that King Jesus will bring perfect justice. If you reject this teaching of scripture, this teaching about God's just judgment, then all you have is whatever justice you can get in the here and now. And I think one of the reasons that many in our society are willing to use violence and injustice to get justice now is because the thought of an eternity of injustice is just flat out intolerable to them. And so they'll use whatever means they can get now to try and get some semblance of justice. Some of you have experienced significant injustice at the hands of other people. You can and you should pursue justice through the just means we have available. And yet, even as you pursue justice now, you can rest in the perfect justice to come. The certain, total, and just victory of King Jesus. The message of Psalm 21 is that God gives the king victory. And as we've seen, in Psalm 21 finds its greatest 
and its ultimate fulfillment in King Jesus. It looks back to his victory over sin and death on the cross and his resurrection. Then it looks forward and and anticipates a future final and decisive victory over every form of evil. And finally, considering our king's past and future victory, Psalm 21 provides us with an appropriate response. Look at verse 13 with me. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray.